Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Daniel Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks for tuning in. And I guess it would be appropriate today to say, Happy Epiphany. I guess I'm saying that to myself, <laughs> huh? Uh, let's try that again, guys, now that you're awake over there. Happy Epiphany. Happy Epiphany. Happy, happy Epiphany. Yeah, that doesn't just flow like <laughs> Merry Christmas, does it? Uh, maybe we need to come up with our own. Epiphany. It is a major celebration in the church here. We always celebrate it this year, uh, and it's January 6th on uh, the way the calendar goes. Uh, we generally celebrate it the Sunday closest, and uh, this year we'll be doing that as well. We'll celebrate Epiphany this coming Sunday. So, uh, Pastor, just a couple of generic general words about Epiphany, what it is, and why we celebrate it. Well, uh, Epiphany is the celebration of uh, the visitation of Christ by the wise men, the Magoi, uh, from the east. And so that's the, it's, who knows if it's the right date or anything, but it's the recognition of that. It also brings to an end the days of Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas have still been going on. I know uh, the world has moved on to Valentine's Day and things like that. But actually, beginning Christmas Day is the first day of Christmas, and that continues for 12 days until the Epiphany. And so uh, all these things together are kind of what the church is celebrating here, the end of the Christmas season, uh, and then this interesting Epiphany season before Lent begins. Okay, so Epiphany is not only a day, but it is a season, and uh, the season of Epiphany is longer or shorter, depending on where Easter falls, and this year it's a little bit longer than uh, it has been in the past, but uh, it's still a very short Epiphany season this year. So to get us into Epiphany, we need to hear the Epiphany Gospel. Vicar, Matthew 2... 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the e wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will, be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it, when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, 
opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, there you have it. Um, it's really easy to uh, pick apart every nativity scene that you have at the Christmas season when you actually read the words here of Matthew chapter 2. What am I talking about, Pastor? <laughs> well, the list of things there could be really long. The The one that we're talking about specifically in regards to Epiphany is that the wise men are always pictured there uh, carrying their gifts on the night that Christ is born, and actually that's not the case. They've come uh, later on. Um, it doesn't give us an exact time frame, but we know that it's not that particular day exactly. And, um, you know, who knows how long afterwards this takes place. Um, so, we have all these interesting things. We have the time frame in the days of King Herod the Great. Uh, we have the star. We have all this stuff. Uh, it's not all the same event. It's not all the same. The, the point of a crush or a nativity scene is to bring all the things that we're talking about to our mind uh, and not to depict the historically accurate thing. And so we have to remember that with nativity scenes and even with nativity plays as well. And even some of the other things we talk about, with nativities are, are not necessarily pictured historically accurately. For even the stable idea um, isn't quite right even, but that's probably more than we need to go into today. Okay, so, so when we get to this text, some time has elapsed between the birth of Jesus, the announcement of the angels, the visit of the shepherds, all those things. Some time has elapsed. We know that because they're in a house, Mm -hmm. And uh, it's more than likely not the same house slash stable that Jesus was born in. And so they are in a house. And, yeah, and go ahead. And even that, you know, um, I, I think that's part of the, the misconception that we have because in nativity scenes, um, Christ is born uh, in a house, not in an inn. Um, I know we'd say there's no room for them in the inn. The word there is actually upper room, and that's the, the, the spare room that you have in your house. And so Mary and Joseph are staying with Joseph's extended family in Bethlehem, and there's not room for them with all the other extended family in the guest room. And so they give them the garage, if you will, where the animals are brought in overnight to have the baby so that Mary might not have a baby with all the family standing there watching her. And just every mother that has ever lived has that terror, right? That your mother-in-law and your mother and your sister will all be standing there watching you give birth. It's terrifying. And so out of kindness and care for Mary, um, they've given her the garage, if you will, the place where the animals stay to have the baby in privacy and in, um, in compassion there. And so there's a really good discussion on issues, etc., where they interview a gentleman about this topic, and it's worth listening to. Okay, excellent. That's, uh, that's good news for us. Um, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Pastor, what do we know about these wise men from the east who came to Jerusalem? Um, well, First off, um, 
the days of Herod the king, uh, this is oftentimes thought to be Herod the Great, who dies about 4 BC, uh, give or take a year. And so that gives us a time frame of when this is happening. Uh, these wise men then, um, the, the word magoi, uh, we often try and translate wise men, uh, but really what it means is those who look at the stars and see what's going on. And whether they're from the east, uh, as in uh, Persia, or the east somewhere else, we don't know that for sure. Um, but th- our basic understanding is that they are people who look up in the sky and figure out what things are going on and interpret the signs. Uh, and, and those are the people we're talking about. We don't know how many. It's more than one, less than, at that time, 100 million, because that's the population of the world. Um, but we don't know how many for sure. We don't know um, the exact location where they come from. And we don't know uh, a whole lot else, actually. You say we don't know how many. Why are there generally three wise men depicted in every nativity set? There's usually three wise men that are depicted because there's three gifts that are being brought and delivered to Christ. And those gifts actually have more to say about who Christ is than how many wise men there were. And I'm sure we'll get to there in a little bit. And so we don't actually know. We just know that they are plural uh, according to the Greek language. And so that's all we could tell you. Some people want to say that these wise men were sorcerers or magicians. Is there any uh, credence to that? Um, Well, the word is the same word we get magician or magic from, but that doesn't actually entomologically mean much for us here today. It, It... they're not sorcerers in the sense of like, um, you know, Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, Dumble Smith or whatever his name is. Um, it's not that sort of thing. Uh, it would be someone who looks up at the sky and sees what the stars are saying, more like an astrologer perhaps. Well, with that thought in mind, um, skipping ahead, it says, we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. They are, these magi are, in a sense, astronomers. They see a new star. They see a star that had been hidden. They see some revelation from God. What is it that they actually see? It is a revelation from God. It's God preaching a sermon through the stars in some way. Now, what exactly is it? Again, we don't have enough information to tell. There are some who say, okay, uh, around this time, the planet Jupiter had retrograde motion around the star, uh, is it Rigel or Regulus? I don't remember. And that uh, that because of that retrograde motion, uh, they knew that a king was being born. I don't think we can say that. The ancients did know the difference between a planet and a star, and so it doesn't have anything to do with a planet like Jupiter. Uh, It could be a um, supernova that was visible. It could be something else. It could be a miracle where God caused uh, some light to appear in the heavens, perhaps even, uh, you know, an angelic sort of light that uh, pointed the way to Christ. We, We don't know for sure, but through some sort of miracle, God caused there to be a light in the sky that pointed the way to Christ. When uh, when the Magi got to Jerusalem, where did they go, Vicar? They went to the king. They went to the king to, uh, they want to know who is he who has been born king of the Jews. 
What is that unusual that these wise men would go to see the king to ask about a new king? I don't think necessarily. I think uh, if they know if anything, if anybody knows anything about it, it seems like they would go to some governmental source to to see uh, to go to the man of power about it. Yeah, and uh, you know maybe they thought a new king had been born, a new baby in the royal family. Uh, it, it seems very logical that that's where they would go, and yet Herod was not happy. What's going on there, Pastor? Well, uh, Herod is a egomaniac who suffers from extreme paranoia to the point where he's even killing his own children and family members because he's afraid they're all trying to take the kingdom away from him. Uh, and he gets into this crazy paranoia towards the end of his life, which we know we're probably pretty close to at this point because of the just the historical evidence. And so Carid, Carid, Herod, King Herod, um, doesn't want there to be another king, and that's his main concern and worry. And so when he hears that there's been a king born, he wants to find out where it is so he can eliminate him, just like he's killed his own children and his own wives and uh, other people like that. So Herod is troubled. All of Jerusalem is troubled, and uh, so it must have been quite an entourage that these... uh, uh, three magi brought along with them the whole the whole city is troubled and when king herod is troubled everybody else is troubled too because they know when the king is troubled somebody's going to die right if you have a um paranoid egomaniac as your ruler when he becomes troubled you are worried too because you don't want to be on the eliminated list. Amen. And that's what's happening. We need to take a short break. We're running a little bit long on this segment. We're looking at the readings for the epiphany of our Lord, proclaiming the one. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're looking at the readings for the Epiphany of Our Lord. And what you heard coming back from our break was the hymn of the day for the Epiphany of Our Lord. O Morning Star, how fair and bright. What a, uh, what a beautiful hymn that encapsulates so much of the uh, wonderful theology that's going on with regard to the Epiphany of Our Lord. We're looking at the gospel reading, Matthew 2, 1 to 12. We've talked about the Magi, who they are, where they came from. We talked a little bit about the star. We, uh, we ended our discussion talking about King Herod, and um, there's, there's virtually nothing positive that you can say about King Herod. But at the end uh, of our first segment, I said, well, at least there was one thing good that Herod uh, 
accomplished or that he did in this account. And so all of our break, Pastor Moline and Vicar and I have been uh, talking about Herod and uh, who he was and where he came from and whatever. What I was referencing was when they asked, where's the king? And Herod says, there is no king, I'm the king. He directs the uh, uh, scribes and the priests to look for some kind of clue where this Christ or Messiah would be. And prompted by the visit of the Magi and prompted by the command from Herod, the scribes and the priests actually look in the Bible. And they come up with a Bible passage from uh, Micah and the promise that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Pastor, what do you want to tell us? And I know we could talk two or three programs about Herod. What do you want to tell us in the context of this particular text with regard to Herod and why he is so important to this particular account? Well, uh, we, we talked a little bit about how he's an egomaniac and maybe the way to get uh, how how is that so? Uh, historically speaking, Herod um, is not actually Jewish by his descent. He's actually a descendant of Esau, an Edomite, or as they're called at this time, Idumeans. Uh, and Herod um, was not actually the one who should be king. Um, but uh, what he did is he created political alliances in his younger days uh, during the Roman Civil War. And so there was um, the first Roman Civil War between um, Caesar and Pompey, and Caesar won. Uh, Caesar is then murdered, and this leads then to the Second Triumvirate, which falls apart and leaves uh, Octavian, or Augustus, and uh, Mark Antony standing. And there's the Second Civil War between Mark Antony and Octavius. And uh, Herod actually sides with Mark Antony against Augustus. Uh, Mark Antony loses, you know, Cleopatra and him, they kill themselves. And um, at that point, Herod comes groveling back and begs for mercy from Augustus and is granted it and the ability then to rule uh, all Judea as the king um, by Augustus. And so that's where he receives his power. And so when we have a descendant of Esau who is now declared to be king of all Judea by a pagan. And the Jews hate this fact because the Jews believe the promise did not come down through Esau, but rather through Jacob, as the scripture teaches. Uh, Esau forsook that uh, that lineage and uh, sold his birthright to his brother. And so the Jews hate Herod, and uh, Herod hates the Jews, and yet he, as a ruler, tries his best to appease them so that they don't rebel against him. So if, so if I can interject here, and I don't want to ruin your train of thought, but there's a reason why Herod is so antsy with regard to the fact that he's sitting on the throne. He knows he's illegitimate. Right. And he's doing everything he can to justify himself with the legitimacy of his kingship. And so a threat to that kingship, even if it's in a tiny little baby, must be eliminated. Am, right. I, re am I reading this right, Pastor? No, you're exactly right. Because he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place not to justify him. Only Christ can do that. Uh, but uh, Herod... 
has gotten his position by groveling to Augustus Caesar, and so he needs to keep Caesar happy. And so he builds pagan temples and monuments to Augustus, and uh, and when he's around Romans, he, he worships Augustus just as all the Romans do. At the same time, he rules a Jewish place uh, who hate him, and so he tries to keep the Jews happy. He builds uh, rebuilds the expansion to the temple and all sorts of other great monuments uh, in Jerusalem that are Jewish of nature. He also then builds uh, a theater and uh, uh, things like that that are pagan in Jerusalem. And so everybody ends up having this conflict with Herod, and he's always under pressure because of it, and that does kind of lead to his craziness. Uh, There's possibilities for other issues as well, but that's what's behind his paranoia. Okay, so we have Herod, who now he's got to find out. If there is some threat to his kingship, he's got to find out, and he does find out. And we have this passage here um, from um, uh, Micah. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. And that is uh, Matthew 2, verse 6, where that verse is quoted there. Why is this Bethlehem passage significant, Vicar? Well, because it's correct. This is something written centuries ago. And uh, Bethlehem is where the star is over. Bethlehem is where Jesus is born. So we have... God's word clearly saying that when the time is right, Bethlehem is going to be great. And the reason why it's going to be great is because the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ is going to come from there. And even the, if you look at uh, Micah 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 2, uh, the, the, what it's saying here is that there'll be that ruler that's coming uh, out of Bethlehem, the one who is promised of old from the ancient days. And so, I mean, when we hear that, we might automatically think, okay, this is talking about David. The issue is this is actually written some 350 years after David has already died. And so when we're looking at this, David is the king who comes out of Bethlehem and Micah 300 years later is saying, oh yeah, there's going to be another king that's going to come out of Bethlehem. And this is the one who was promised from the ancient days, from of old. And this takes us all the way back then to the Garden of Eden and the fall into sin, where Eve is promised that one of her offspring will crush the serpent's head uh, even as his heel is pierced. A, a promise of Jesus. And so that promise of Jesus, the Savior, has been brought forth into Micah and now is being quoted here by Matthew. Uh, and, and Herod, I don't think, will have missed this uh, when he when he sees this. And we have this promise given in uh, the Psalms where David says uh, to his Lord, who is also his son, and we have the dynastic oracle in Second Samuel 7, where someone will sit on David's throne forever. We have all these things coming to fruition here, right here, right now, and the wise men uh, have, have just made this abundantly clear to Herod. Right, and we got to remember here, uh, Bethlehem is not an important place. It's a little teeny tiny podunk town, um, maybe a couple hundred people that are living there at this time, just as there were at the time David came from there. And so this little tiny unimportant place is suddenly thrust into Herod's uh, 
bullseye, or I don't know how you say it. His, his yeah, crosshairs. Of, crosshairs, there's the word. Uh, and, and so this is not good news for them. So when Herod hears this, uh, Herod gets real chummy with the wise men, Vicar, and he calls the wise men together. And what does he tell them? Go and search for the child. Go and find him and let me know so I can come worship him too. Um, an obvious bald-faced lie. Yes, and w- with what we know about Herod, he wants the Magi to do the dirty work, and then he's going to come in and clean up afterwards. And, and reassure them that there's, they're not in any danger. Just come on back. Let me know. Kind of like the, uh, the head of the mob who uh, wants to find out where the uh, witness who's in witness protection is at. And uh, as soon as he finds out, uh, we all know what will happen to everybody involved in that little plot and that little scheme. So they go on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Again, Pastor, were they kept from seeing this star while they were in Jerusalem? Did uh, did God now uh, make a new manifestation of the star so that they would know precisely where to go? How do, how do we understand these words? Well, um, this is where we have to understand the star here being a miracle of God in some way, shape, or form. Um, all we know is that at this point, they've come to Jerusalem, and now the star moves south, uh, leading them to Bethlehem. And, and here's where I kind of wonder if this star is not actually perhaps angelic work, where God is sending a messenger to lead the people where they need to be, to focus their attention where it ought to be. Um, That's what angels do. They never point to themselves. They always point to God. And so this star is pointing to uh, Jesus. And uh, I know we have other places in Scripture where we talk about the angels as stars, if you will, in a way. Not that the stars that are in the sky are all angels. I'm not saying that, but sometimes uh, a shorthand way of saying angel is to talk about them in terms of a star. And this is likely here because stars don't move like this. Stars are fixed in the sky, and the ancients knew that just as we know that today. And so when the star moves, that tells us that this is out of the normal star behavior. One one of the things that I've thought about is that when they got close to Jerusalem, maybe they stopped looking for the star. Maybe they just assumed they knew what they were doing, and they went to Herod, assuming that a new king would be in the king's palace. And then when they left the king's palace, whoa, boy, we can see the star again. We, maybe we should have been looking for the star the whole time. Or, or even, I think, God is always wanting to give people opportunities for repentance. And so God might have brought the wise men to King Herod as one last chance, uh, one last proclamation of his word to Herod, which, as we can tell from what happens later on, Herod outrightly rejects. I love that because it manifests the love of God even for the most wicked among us. They rejoiced exceedingly or rejoiced with great rejoicing. I love that. Um, They went to the house. They saw the child, Mary's mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Pastor, in the time that we have left, they, they searched for the child. They said, we've come to worship him. God leads them to Jesus. They fall down and worship him, and then they give them gifts. And we'll talk about the gifts in the next segment. But can we say from what we have here in our text that uh, the Magi worship Jesus in faith, that they were Christians, believers? 
I think they are believers and they are Christians at this point, though they probably don't understand all everything yet. They're just as Christian as the apostles will be uh, prior to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And what I mean is they might not see the fullness of what Jesus has come to accomplish by the cross, um, but they understand that Jesus is somebody important sent from God, even uh, God himself, because they're worshiping him, and that's not something you do to a non-godly or non-divine being. That's uh, often the case for us as well, isn't it? We, we believe, Lord, help us in our unbelief. There are many deep truths in Scripture that we just haven't thought about, comprehended, and uh, we need God's Word to continue to reveal them to us. We need to take a short break. We're looking at the readings for the epiphany of our Lord, proclaiming the one. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. I could just listen to that choral anthem with regard to uh, our, our hymn, a hymn of the day for the epiphany of our Lord, O Morning Star, how fair and bright. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for Epiphany, the epiphany of our Lord. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden, we are privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship. We gather every Sunday. 8 and 10.30 with Sunday school for all ages in between. Each Wednesday evening throughout the year, 6.30. We also have many, many programs archived for us on our church and radio website, www.thecross957.org. And all the worship services that we have are broadcast live on KNNALP 95.7. Please join us. Please listen. We'd love your feedback. The Epiphany of Our Lord. In our first two segments, we looked at the gospel reading from Matthew 2, 1 to 12. One uh, rather significant part of that gospel reading that we didn't talk about were the gifts that the Magi brought, and I did that on purpose because I want to pick that up as we examine our Old Testament reading. The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 60. 1 to 6. Luther loved to preach on this text. We have several Epiphany sermons or Epiphany season sermons based on this text by Luther that are preserved for us. Vicar, take it away. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be, be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, 
your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Okay, there you have it, the Old Testament reading for the Epiphany of Our Lord, Isaiah 60, 1 to 6. Pastor, there is something really, really different with the theme and the tenor of the last few chapters of the book of Isaiah. What's going on here? Well, uh, the last little bit of Isaiah, we are definitely looking ahead to Christ's coming and the good news that, that will bring, um, even in the face of, in the time of Isaiah, coming exile and destruction, um, which is follows not, you know, a century or so after the time Isaiah is done writing. And so we go from that destruction and exile and all that sort of talk to Christ is coming and here's what promises he gives and here's where your hope and faith ought to be placed, not in the things of this world, but rather in the promises of God. So we have kind of a, if I'm hearing you correctly, we have kind of a twofold celebration going on and it is very celebratory in nature. Um, The exiles will return from captivity because God says so. The Messiah will come and take away the sin of the world because God says so. And so we have both of these things that are a part of the celebration. And sometimes it's a little hard to distinguish one from the other. Is that, is that a fair way of looking at these last, especially the last 10 chapters of Isaiah or so? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So we have here, arise, shine, For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. What light are we talking about? Is this a reference to the star that the wise men followed to locate uh, as God directed them to find the baby Jesus? Well, it might be. Um, I think, though, that if we think about the star, what was the star really doing? It was pointing them to the true light, which had come into the world, to use John's language from his gospel. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. And I think that when John writes those words in John chapter 1, he's really thinking about this particular Isaiah passage where the world is covered in thick darkness, and then a light shines out in it. And... um, you know, if you go into the bottom of a cave, uh, and they always turn off the lights to show you how dark it is underground in a cave, um, one little tiny light in the midst of that sort of darkness really brings everything into to a little bit better focus and view, and that's the same thing that Jesus does. So I think that the light they're talking about and pointing towards is Christ, and even the star uh, from the gospel lesson is pointing us to Christ, the true light. Uh, we, we know that that is exactly what's going on. Isaiah 60, verse 2, talks about this exact same darkness. You want to read that verse again? Verse 2 of Isaiah 60, Vicar. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Uh, Vicar, do you have your, your Bible handy? If you can go to Isaiah chapter 25 Isaiah chapter 25 because I don't know how you can read Isaiah 60 verse 2 
without the reference going back to, to one of the more famous prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9, and it talks also about the darkness that covers all people. This is the appointed gospel reading for Easter Sunday. So we have Epiphany, uh, this gospel from Isaiah 60, Easter, Isaiah 25. Are you there? Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah is saying, We've waited. It's going to happen. Rejoice. This shroud that covers all nations, uh, sin, death, all of the consequences of sin are going to be wiped away and your tears are going to be taken away. Now here in Isaiah 60, Isaiah continues that theme as if it has already happened. Pastor, this darkness that we are talking about, what is this darkness? Uh, sin, death, and the power of the devil. Well, that was pretty simple. Yeah. And uh, so now we have kind of an Advent theme in verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. And what do they see? It appears that there is a huge gathering of the nations. People from north, south, east, west are all coming together. What are they coming together for, Pastor? Well, they're being brought together by the word, the Lord, the word that is about Jesus. And this is kind of a um, great reversal from the very beginning when sin entered the world. God has been spreading people out across the face of the, Asian, the, the earth. We see that uh, with uh, the Tower of Babel. We see it um, with the conquering by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians and the great diaspora that's talked about in the Old Testament. And Isaiah is saying that this is all going to be undone and that God is going to gather his people together by the power of his holy word, uh, specifically the word that points people to Jesus Christ. And so the diaspora is being undone by Pentecost, by uh, the Holy Spirit's work, by preaching. And so it is that we here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, are part of the one holy Christian Catholic lowercase c church, if you will. We're united with those in faith in places like Madagascar and uh, uh, Ethiopia and uh, Siberia and all sorts of other places where there are faithful Christians. We are now one body of Christ, um, and that's kind of a neat thing that's being foretold here. So the word draws us, the light draws us, the light is Jesus Christ, and uh, uh, then you shall see, you shall be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult. And then the last line, they shall bring gold and frankincense 
and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. This response of faith that brings our worship, our praises, and our gifts, how does that relate today to the life of a Christian? Um, how does the response? Yes, it seems like a good stewardship text to me. Well, I mean, it definitely is. I think that uh, we need to be better stewards of the things that God gives us and to use them more wisely. Uh, I think that's true. I think, though, that then this is also pointing us forward to these wise men coming and showing us what their faith does. Uh, In faith in the Word, and they travel across the great land to come to Christ, to come to hear uh, from him, to come and see him, to come and participate in him. And they come bearing gifts that are used to care for uh, the, the holy family, if you will, um, the, the gold which provides them with an income, the ability to maybe travel to Egypt or back uh, or wherever to b- build a home, things like that. Uh, the, the frankincense, which is um, used to worship God correctly and appropriately. The myrrh, which is used to uh, heal wounds and to uh, cover the scent of dead bodies and things like that. And so in the same way that they're using these things to care for Christ, we also then bring the gifts that we have to care for the church as well. I suppose you could say that. The gifts that are prophesied here in Isaiah 60, they are they are certainly uh, fulfilled in the gifts that the Magi bring as they worship the Christ child. And I think by extension, we can say that whatever gifts we bring, Uh, We should be bringing them in faith as we worship the one and only Savior from sin, Jesus, the light of the world that no darkness can overcome. These gifts, which may seem precious to ourselves or to the world, they are simply returning to God the gifts that he has given us in response to the greatest gift that the world has ever seen. God giving his son to take away our sin. Thanks be to God for that. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the Epiphany of our Lord. We need to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to look at our epistle reading, Ephesians 3, 1 to 12. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings. They help us uh, prepare for our Sunday morning worship. Today we're looking at the readings for the Epiphany of our Lord. In our first two segments, we looked at the Gospel reading for Epiphany Sunday, Matthew 2, 1-12. 
In our third segment, we looked at the Old Testament reading, great prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 60, 1 to 6. And now in our epistle reading, we want to look at Ephesians 3, 1 to 12. Now that this light of the world has come into the world, the light that breaks and shatters all darkness, the one that is worthy of our worship and our praise, what does that mean for us? as Christians right here and right now. Vicar? For this reason, I, Paul, appear a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Wow, we got a lot of different topics in that great section there from Ephesians 3, 1 to 12, the epistle reading for the epiphany of our Lord. Pastor, I can't help, as I was listening to Vicar read those words, uh, I didn't count, I want to say five or six times the word mystery was used in that text. Paul uses that word a lot and in several different places, but in verse 6, he talks about the specific mystery that he is referring to here. What is this mystery and what difference does it make for us today? Well, <clears throat> according to verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. In other words, the word of God isn't just for the Jewish people, it's for all people in all the world. And I think that that is the mystery then that he's talking about. <clears throat> and which he is a steward or administrator of, as he says in verse uh, 2. And so Paul has been called and placed into the office of pastor, and for him specifically apostle, to preach the word and to administer the sacraments uh, to not just Jewish people, but also then to the Gentiles. And that is a, a great blessing for all of us, uh, at least most of us listening, because that's where our um, ancestry is probably from is these pagan people that Paul was sent to preach the word to. And so our faith springs out of the preaching and teaching and administering the sacraments that Paul accomplished in his lifetime. Paul talks a lot about mystery in, uh, in his writings. We have the mystery of the incarnation. 
how God takes on flesh and blood and makes his dwelling among us. We have the mystery of how God in the flesh bleeds and dies for the sin of the world. We have the mystery of the resurrection, how Jesus, dead, is now back to life. We have the mystery of how God comes to us, is really present, his glory is delivered to us in word and sacrament. In 1 Corinthians 4, we have the mystery, the stewardship of the mysteries of the grace that are delivered to us in uh, word and sacrament through the office of the holy ministry. We got a lot of mystery talk going on here. Uh, is this some kind of a cover that God, through the Apostle Paul, is using, uh, using all this mystery language? Or is the fact that the Christian faith revolves around mystery really crucial to who we are as Christians? Well, it is really crucial to who we are as Christians, the fact that God, who is almighty, all-powerful, omnipresent, uh, uh, enormous, if you will, I don't know how you want to say it, this all-powerful being, uh, lays aside his glory, takes on human flesh uh, in the incarnation, uh, allows himself to be uh, arrested by his creation, beaten by his creation, mocked by his creation, killed by his creation, uh, all that done to save us from sin. The mystery is that God actually loves us enough to do that, and that uh, God has promised this from the very beginning and fallen to sin, and that he has now brought it to fulfillment. Why would a God do that? Um, you know, the pagan gods that Paul is probably writing in opposition to here, their main concern is not the people. Their main concern is themselves. Uh, think about Zeus and what he's always running around doing. He's philandering. Uh, think about uh, uh, the other gods. You know, they're always self-serving, self-absorbed. And so, our God is not that way, and that is a great mystery and one that we probably can never understand or answer um, because it is such a mystery. And that's really the beauty of this mystery language. We're not talking about you know some kind of Sherlock Holmes mystery book, who done it. Um, you know th those are, are thrillers, and then when you find out who done it at the end, it wasn't really a mystery after all. It was kind of like it was a giant secret going on, and you uh, uncover the secret, and now you understand it by your logic or by your reason. This mystery, this unsearchable, and uh, let's let me get the the words right out of the text. Ephesians three verse eight. The unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the mystery that has been revealed to Paul, that Paul was revealing to the nations through his preaching, and now goes on, this is what we believe, teach, and confess in the church, and this is the mystery that we proclaim, this unsearchable riches of Christ. We cannot fathom it by our own reason or strength. That's what makes it a mystery. As you correctly said, all the pagan gods demand something of us. And what does the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do? God sends his Son into the flesh to suffer and die in our stead. The Son of God bears the weight of the world, the light of the world, seemingly is snuffed out only to come back to life three days later to bring life and immortality to light 
for each of us who cling to this Jesus by grace through faith. And now, uh, so that, in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to everyone, starting with the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Pastor, how does the church today make known the mysteries of God, the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ? How do we do it, and why is this the central mission of the church? Well, um, faithful preaching and teaching uh, about Christ and his word is how the church goes about this business. And I think the study of the book of Acts is the way to see this. What does the church do? The church sends preachers out. It preaches, it has liturgy, it um, sings hymns and uh, spiritual songs and those sorts of things, uh, divine service. And so I think this is important for those people who separate themselves from the church and say, well, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious, or you know, I'm a Christian but I don't believe in the organized church is just foolish because the Bible's pretty clear about it, that uh, the church is the place where the manifold wisdom of God is delivered to you for the forgiveness of your sins. And uh, this isn't to build us up as anything important or anything. It's not even the pastor that's important. The pastor's job is to be faithful and to do the things that he's called to do um, so that that word might be upheld as the most important thing. Vicar, as the church has been given this message... According to the last verse in our text, what is our attitude and approach as we preach, teach, and live this manifold richness that we have in Christ? Well, the believers not only have access through Christ, but the word, the word preach, the word that um, shows us, brings to light the plan of the mystery actually gives us the faith, gives us the boldness, gives us the confidence that we do have access into all the things that are being made known to us through it. This mystery that God has given us, that Christ is the Savior of the world, God in the flesh for us, that this message is from the Jews, but for all people, this mystery of forgiveness, life, and salvation in word and sacrament, this is for you, dear listener. Have confidence. Be bold. Know that even though you live in a world of darkness, Christ is the light of the world. He has overcome sin, death, and the grave for you. He is worthy of our worship, our adoration, our prayers, and yes, even our gifts. This is good news, and God will continue to draw all people to Jesus as this word goes out in its truth and purity, as his word goes out faithfully preached and taught and sung, as we confess it in our churches, in our homes, in our families, in our communities, God will bring about a mighty miracle. Sinners will believe and be forgiven. Redemption in and through Jesus Christ. Vicar, the collect of the day for the epiphany of our Lord, would you share those words and bring our program to a close? Let us pray. O God, by the leading of a star, 
You have made known your only begotten Son to the Gentiles. Lead us, who know you by faith, to enjoy in heaven the fullness of your divine presence. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Vicar Daniel Golden and Pastor Adam Moline, I am Pastor Clint Poppy. Thank you for tuning in to Proclaiming the One. When you get up on Sunday, read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, but most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>